Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, page 809 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. While you're turning there, just let me say a couple of things. The video that you saw was what was shown at our ministry summit this year in the middle of January, so that was something that we were able to enjoy a second time now this morning. Also, I find myself again thanking all of you. Um, This past week for three days, I had the privilege of attending a pastor's conference in Minneapolis. It was hosted by uh, Bethel Theological Seminary and John Piper's um, Desiring God Ministries. The theme for the three days was Romans 5, the rebellion of man and the abundance of God's grace. It was terrifically helpful. Uh, It was affirming theologically. It was convicting as it should be personally in some areas. And um, it was so uh, enriching. I think I took almost 50 pages of handwritten notes. And um, I was able to have three days with my peers and my colleagues in the Bible. And it was just terrific. So I just want to make sure that you know that I appreciate when you let me do those things. So those of you that give to that end, I, I, um, I want to thank you. I also want to thank you for uh, letting me have the time to be able to do those things. They're, they're most necessary, extremely helpful. So, um, so thank you. All right, let's read the Bible. And as always, if you have a question about anything this morning when we're through, not anything, <laughs> anything that was said, sung, or read, or about Jesus Christ, <laughs> I'd be happy to try to answer those questions for you when we're done. So let's, let's hear the word of the Lord. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint judges, even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Amen. Let's pray as we thank God for his word and seek the help that we so desperately need this morning to listen and to preach it. Well, Father, we come now to this precious moment where we need you to speak to us through the pages of your Bible, through the voice of a mere man. So please help us to hear, enable us to understand, not to fight these things. Therein, God, give us the grace that we need to do what your word says, that we might be your people shining out as stars in the midst of a fallen world. So clearly, Father, as always, our desperate need is for you to come to speak to my weakness, mighty as you are, so that we would love you and do the things that you would do in everything. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who bled and died for our sins, which makes this prayer even a possibility. Amen. Now, the last time we were together, we began our time by saying that uh, the root issue in the church in Corinth was pride. 
And we said that pride, the Bible teaches, makes us blind to our personal sin and big with our mouths and, to be honest, small with our brains. Simply because pride can make a church blind to the main and plain truths of God's Word. And that was the case in Corinth. And that's how we began. And to be honest, that's the way we need to begin this morning and this week's talk. Because at first sight, these uh, first eight verses of chapter 6 appear like a divergent. Paul goes down before he gets to the real, you know, spicy stuff of uh, sexual purity. But that's not so. In fact, this morning, I counted the number of verses that Paul spent on this topic versus the number of verses uh, verses that he spent uh, on sexual purity in chapter 6. And they're about the same. I mean, I say that because as things come to us by way of mail or ministry issues, uh, I think we all know that uh, sexual purity gets gets more space and time than lawsuits among believers. And sometimes that imbalance uh, would wreck our lines of thinking. To Paul, lawsuits among believers is just as critical as sexual purity. So the problem is pride. And that was the Corinthian church. And that could be this church's problem. And it could be any church's problem if they think that they could never fall foul of pride. And pride, as in the case here, will inevitably lead to competitive and assertive nature in a man or in a woman in Christ's church. And that fits this context, which gives you a sense of just how unapologetically worldly the Corinthian church had become. Corinth at this time was a boom town. Money is everywhere. Business was super. And the competitive and assertive nature that can lend itself to that framework has, has seeped into Christ's church. And that was the problem because it was Christ's church This is the church where Christ was the head. Uh, Jesus purchased this church by his blood. This is the church that Jesus promised, like all churches, that he himself would build and protect and bless. So where does competitiveness and where does assertiveness take place? Well, why would it take place? Because Jesus has no rivals. So why is there competitiveness? Why is there assertiveness? Augustine, 4th century, would say when the power and financial structures of Rome were trying to be placed in the church by some of her leaders, he would say to them, what does Rome have to do with Bethlehem? What? It's the same here. What does competitiveness and assertiveness have to do in Christ's church? But one of the byproducts of competitiveness and assertiveness, as chapter 6 shows us, is they have an unhealthy concern for personal rights. Which is why one of Paul's answers to the problem of lawsuit among believers, and we'll get to this more fully in a moment, Paul's answer with the problem is just abandon your your rights. See that in verse 7 if your Bible's open? Look at it. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Well, why not lose? Are you that competitive? Do you always have to win? And I know this runs counter to not only human nature, but equally to our our just uh, litigation-stricken age. 80% of all lawyers live in the United States. 15 million lawsuits in the year 2012. It costs $251 billion. And less than 15 cents on that dollar actually went to the petitioner. Google and Apple spent more money in 2011 on lawsuits and issues doing, uh, leading with their patents than they did on their research and development. And yet, 83% of people say in America that they're Christians. 
There's a disconnect there. Therefore, the concern here for the Christians in the church in Corinth's own personal rights had apparently so overtaken them that they were extremely and defiantly touchy if anyone infringed with and pinged on their personal rights and, and their personal freedoms. And if it happened, it was more than likely off to court, whether you're my brother or sister or not. And, and you guys... It is hard to live in community if the community is filled with that line of thinking. It's hard if everyone is putting themselves as number one in God's community. You won't have real community. If the community has to live on pens and needles, you do not have real community. You might have a group of people getting together on a Sunday, but that's all you have. And that's far less than God's design for his church. Uh, We have worship to give to God together. We have work to do for the honor of Christ's name and the building of his kingdom together. We have love to give to each other. Therefore, any unhealthy preoccupation with our own personal rights, verse 7, must be destroyed in the body of Jesus Christ. Because together is really hard to do if we carry in our hearts the banner is I am number one, my rights first. If you don't do as I like, if you cross me, if you fail me, I'll pick up my toys and leave. Or in the case in the church in Corinth, I'll take you to court. Cross me, fail me, and we'll go to court. So when Nicole and I left for the cities on Monday... On the Sunday before the Monday, one of the things that we said to our kids was, son, you're in charge. And we said, daughter, make sure you're ready to go when he's ready to take you to school. And we then said, son, if your sister isn't ready, okay, be patient. Help her to get ready so that we can, you can leave together and arrive safely to the school. Because that's the goal. Everybody on time, safely there. And daughter, please make sure you're ready so that the brother... Your brother can get to school safely. And we both said, please help each other while we're gone. What's that? That's family. That's community. If if they get it wrong, bear with them. Because you want them to get it right. And you see, that happens when Christ is first in everything. So Paul writes these words because assertiveness for personal rights in the body of Christ will inevitably lead to grievances. I want you to hear that. Assertiveness in the body of Christ will inevitably lead to grievances. And once the Christian becomes obsessed with their own personal rights instead of their God-given responsibilities, then there will be trouble. You know that song that everybody sings on The Voice and, and American Idol? Trouble, 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 trouble. Trouble been dogging my soul since the day I was born. That's the case in Corinth, trouble. And so what Paul does then, by apostolic authority, by Christ-centered authority, he lays down a rule and order for the church to avoid lawsuits among believers. And that's the title of our talk. And that takes us then to our first point. In fact, if you have a worship folder, you'll see it on the back, history. Verse 1, let me just read it. If any of you have a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Now, it's more than likely that the church in Corinth was avoiding a situation which they needed to tend to in a biblical way. And it could have been even the issue in chapter 5 of a man having his father's wife. And so the church, having completely ignored that issue in the privacy of the church, was then pushed out then to a public lawsuit. 
Or look at your Bible, verse 11. It could have been any of those things. Those were sins typically of money and mouth, right? Slander, greed, drunkenness. All those things can lead to horrible disputes. So then the church would be failing on two levels. One, first, being unprepared to deal with the matter internally, privately, as it should have. And secondly, because it failed in this, what should have remained internal and private has now become external and in the public eye. Now, if you've been in church for over like five years, you know that these things take place all the time. I'm sorry to say. We think that by covering up immorality, uh, kind that akin to chapter 5, that we're saving face or perhaps promoting tolerance. But in actual fact, when that unrepentant, uh, deviant sinner, big with it, is not dealt with, and we try to cover it up, the thing eventually becomes far more public and far more terrible. And in the case of the Corinthian church, off the thing goes into the public square and the watching world speaks the inevitable line when they see those things happen, when they see people like me or people like you in Christ blowing it and it goes public, they inevitably say what? See, see, I told you they're not any different than us. When Jesus said in Matthew 7 that those who hear his words and put them into practice as opposed to those who hear his words and do not put them into practice. When he said that, he was saying, listen, both groups will look the same for most of the time. But when the storm comes, and the storms will inevitably come to all of us, one house stands, the other house washed away. What's the difference? Well, the difference is simply this. One house put the words of Jesus Christ into practice. So it could be like five years, it could be 20 years later, it could be 50 years later. Listen and apply and live, or listen and ignore and be washed away for the storm that comes to all of us. So in a word, what the church had failed to do was do things God's way. And so their pride was soaked in worldliness, and that was their personal history. Now let me give you a little bit of the context uh, historically. Because I think you'll be surprised. So the Greeks at this time, law courts were one of their favorite entertainment venues. So if you had a free day at that time on your hands, one of the things you probably would do was attend a court proceeding. It was, it was like a movie to them. Greeks loved litigation. They loved to pass judgments. Not so different than our time. I mean, just think of all the times we binge watch a Law and Order. People love that stuff. So the lawsuits, once they took place, would go into either private mediations or depending on the suit, you would have up to 40 jurors deciding your case. And believe it or not, in certain cases, there were between 1,000 and 6,000 individuals who would hear and decide the court case. Now, first of all, you can imagine how long it would take to reach a verdict with 6,000 people deciding. But, but now do you see why Paul is so concerned with a believer taking another believer to court? The unconverted are seeing this. Look at verse 6. In front of unbelievers, you're doing all this. And so these people were so fascinated by litigation that would, people would assemble themselves in front of the courthouse... In the morning, like day laborers, and they would look for work, and great masses of people would put themselves forward, make a little money, hire themselves out for the day or for an hour or two to serve as a juror. That was their situation. 
William Barclay on this says, In a Greek city, every man was more or less a lawyer, and they spent a large portion of their time either listening or deciding lawsuits. The Greeks were notorious for loving to spend their time on law. So, so this kind of thinking was just built in to the very psyche of the Corinthian culture. So it's no surprise here. If, if a church is going to live differently in a litigation-stricken uh, age, one of the temptations that they would have to face is, is either we're going to do it God's way or we're going to do it the way of the world when we settle these disputes. Now, loved ones, Jesus had already spoken on what to do when you're sinned against. Jesus said this, in many places, we need to consider our own sin first. Then if you need to, we confront and we work to forgive and we work together to reconcile. However, what the Corinthians were doing, were spending their time on what they shouldn't have done and then spending all their time in the courts of law. And effectively, the church then was completely defeated. That's why Paul says that in verse 7. Okay, that's our first point, history. Second point, theology, and that begins in verse 2. Now, as you're thinking about this, I'm sure a number of things are just rolling through your head right now about when it is right or when it is wrong to go to court. Or even is it wrong or right to go to court with an unbeliever? Well, we're going to get to that in a second. As you think about the writer first uh, who's writing this, Paul, I don't want you to think that Paul is mis, uh, uh, degrading or mistrusting the law courts. He's not. Paul himself appealed to Roman judicial system. Let me give you one example. Acts 28 verse 19. Paul appealed to Caesar. Paul in Romans 13 wrote about the judicial system. God put them there. They are God's servant. They are agents of God's wrath. Verse 4 of chapter 13. To bring punishment on the wrongdoer. However, in Paul's own appeal to the courts, Paul never went to the courts brother against brother. He never went to the courts accusing a fellow brother. So here's the general principle that you need to hear. There is never a time, there's never a time when a Christian can go to court against another Christian. That's the principle that Paul is laying down. There's no time when it's right for a Christian to go to court against another Christian. Now, as soon as you hear that, again, you, you say, well, what are the exceptions? Well, there are some exceptions because this is a principle. It's not a law, it's a principle. So let me give you two exceptions. When a believer is on the receiving end of a divorce decree, you haven't begun this, you don't desire this, but you cannot negate it. You'll have to go into the courtroom because the law demands this. And if there's going to be a proper disillusionment of the marriage, it has to take place in a court of law. Due process to the law that summons us to court is to be followed always. I'm thinking of a, a character in my mind that I always used to try to play that game, a conservative, a, oh, the judges aren't right and the system isn't right, so I'm not going to be in the system. And you're like, no, you're just, you're just playing around. Don't do that. Due process is due process. Follow it. That's one example. A second example, in order to protect the well-being of a child from being physically abused, we may have to go to court, public court, to get a restraining order from that individual who's part of the body in order to provide protection, both legal protection and police protection. And all those things are pro proper. But those things are the exception. So the principle here is clear. When, when there's a dispute, money dispute, property dispute, business dispute, personal dispute, we are to settle the matter, among, among, uh, matter excuse me, amongst ourselves. 
And that's the theology that Paul lays down in light of the principle there. Now, what Paul does then to kind of back this truth up is, if you look at your Bibles, he gives this rhetorical question. Verse 2, do you not know? Verse 3, look at your Bibles, please. Do you not know? Verse 2, do you not know that saints will judge the world? Cosmos, the entire universe and the created order. So verse 2 is written in the future tense because last time, what did we learn? 1 Corinthians 5, 12. Right now, we are not to judge those outside the church. In other words, remember we said there's no finger wagging at the world. We can't do that. That's God's business, not our business. But in the future, there's coming a day, says the Old and New Testament, when all of us in Christ will share all the resurrection realities. And one of those realities is that we will judge the nations and we will judge the whole created order, including angels. Now, now if you're still listening, one day, all of us will sit on the Supreme Court of God's kingdom. Now, Christian, are you hearing that? And if you're thinking and you care, aren't you just blown away by that gift? I mean, that is big stuff. I want to say personally, are you sure, you know, God, are you sure you want me on the court? When I was talking to the kids about the whole be good stuff, my wife was right behind me and she was giving me the look and the look was making them do, well, my words weren't making them do anything. Yeah, Joe, I'm sure. One day in Christ, I will mediate Christ's rule for for all of the created order. Let me give you three Bible examples quickly. Revelation 3.21 to the believers who are just going through a beatdown because of persecution, because of their devotion to Jesus Christ. John writes, to the one who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious, victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. 2 Timothy 2, 11, 12. This is a trustworthy saying. If you died with him, you'll live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Ephesians 2, 6. By grace you've been saved. And verse 6. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And the heavenly places are at the right hand of God. And Christ is seated at that right hand. And we will be, if you would, at the right hand of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to listen carefully. And I want you to think with me. We may not think of ourselves as kings and queens who will rule over creation. We may not even carry ourselves in a way right now to show this is our inheritance. Nevertheless, this is the consequence of the great work of Christ on the cross at Calvary as he bled and died for our sins. So this is big stuff. We may not on this earth be a person of any status at all. Or we may be a person of of high status, whatever the case. But for all eternity, our destiny for the Christian will be that we will rule at the highest level ever, forever. Now, are you getting that? Ever, forever. Daniel 7. Thrones were set in place, and the angels of days took his seat. He was clothed, was white as snow. The hair of his head was like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. The courts were seated. Loved ones, who will be the court? Who will be presiding? 
Who? On one of the buses I was on this week, there was a fellow playing uh, the Little Richard song, Good Golly, Miss Molly. So that's been in my head. Who's going to be presiding on, on the court? Good golly, Miss Molly, it's the Christian. It is you and I in Christ. Now listen carefully. What Paul does then is he takes them to this great high feeling and then he just brings them down. You Corinthians, look at the bloody mess that you've gotten yourself into. There's coming a day when you rascals in Christ will judge the nations. You'll judge the whole cosmos, the whole universe. Are you, are you able then? Don't you think you're able to judge these petty matters? Verse 2b, do you see it there? These trivial matters. Eklok istos is the Greek word. Mikros. These tiny little matters as compared to your eternal destiny. And what's the answer? It's a rhetorical question. Yes, of course you can. If you're going to mediate Christ's rule and judge the cosmos, don't you think that you can make a proper judgment on something as silly as as a few dollars or some property or your feelings? Can't you just do that? Of course you can. And then look at verse 12, 3, excuse me. Verse 3 tells us that Christians will judge angels. That's our destiny. Okay, which ones? Fallen angels or or regular angels? Well, to be honest, the Bible doesn't really exactly say. So we can't be dogmatic. The word in verse 3 for judge is krino. It means uh, make a a final rule or a governing rule. So I think that, yeah, we are going to judge fallen angels. And I think we're going to govern regular angels. Now think about that for a moment or two. Some of you ladies, you wear those lovely angel pins. That's nice. So we're wearing angel pens on earth. Don't you think that angels might be wearing human pens in heaven on the robes? Why not? Why not? Listen to your Bible. 1 Peter 1.12. Peter says, he's been explaining the great work of the gospel. And then he says, even angels look to long into these things. In other words, these salvation facts, the glories of the gospel, are so big that they command the interest of angels. Angels don't know what it's like to be saved by grace. Angels have never experienced the power of the gospel. So, so you you know, I want to say, okay, let's sidetrack for a moment, but it's in the notes, so it's not really a sidetrack. Don't be so petty with the gospel. Don't keep the gospel on your shelf, you know, and so you're really bad, and when you're really bad, you pull the gospel off the shelf and go, whew, glad that was over with. Okay, done with that. Put the gospel back on the shelf, and off I go. Don't do that. Rely on the gospel for everything, every day. Glory in it. Swim in it. Whatever you need to do. So again, if we're going to do what Paul says, if we're going to mediate Christ's rule, judge the cosmos, the whole created order, we're going to judge angels, don't you think that we can make a proper judgment in matters uh, earthly? Don't you think we can? Well, let me ask you a question. Why couldn't they? Look at your Bible, verse 4. Paul says these matters are so trivial, just get a person of little account in the church. No big deal. Just get anyone. Pick anyone in Christ and let them judge it. That's all you need. So again, why couldn't they do that? Well, unbelief will do that, right? So when I was talking about all that judgment stuff and we'll be in heaven judging angels and judging the cosmos, if you're thinking like, well, I'm not sure about that. Unbelief will do that. Not putting the words of Jesus Christ into practice will do that. If you play pretend church, 
right? We get together only on Sunday, pretend, then off we go. That'll do that. But primarily, why would they not do what Paul said? Well, one word, pride. Okay, define pride. Assertiveness and, and competitiveness for my own personal rights. You get that? Okay, I want everything that is coming to me. I want everything my way, and, and, and they did this to me, and I want them to hurt and feel my pain. Give me my justice. And then Paul says, verse 5, I say this to your shame. He says it to them, and if it's needed this morning, he says it to us. Really? I had to go to Pilgrim's Progress. Sorry. I think I know I've told you this account from the book, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. So there's two little kids in a room. One is patient. One is passion. Passion is never content. He's a humpty grumpty is what he is. Patience is very quiet and very content. Question, why is patience always content? Because he waits for the best things. He will have his glory proper when the others have nothing but rags. He will wait to the glory of the next world and enjoy all his privileges forever. And for the sake of Christ, for the honor of Christ's name in the world, he would rather be, verse 7, wronged and he'd rather be cheated in the context of the church. Okay, why is passion never content? Because God, the ruler of him, would have him wait for the best things till later on, till the next world, to heaven. But no, passion will have it all now. And if people have to go down because I want it all now, then they got to go down. Verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Why not? Why not? Assertiveness, competitiveness, pride. Listen to these two hymns. Since my eyes were fixed on Jesus, I've lost sight of all besides. So enchain my spirit's vision looking at the crucified. I found the one of peerless worth. Isn't that a great line? Peerless worth. My heart does sing for joy. And I sing I must for Christ I have. Oh, what Christ I have. My Christ is my life, my light, my why, my, my way, my comfort, and my health. My peace, my rest, my joy, my hope, my glory, and my wealth. All my crosses. All my losses. For the honor of Jesus Christ in this world. Final point. First point was history. The worldly way of doing things seeped it into the church. Off to court they go. Theology. Paul says, no, no. There's no believer to believer lawsuit. You're going to judge angels and the whole entire cosmos, the whole universe. Don't you think that you can judge these petty manners? You should because you can. Then reality. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. Instead... You yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. So let's try to bring this all home. Do you have a pending lawsuit against a believer in Christ? Are you ready to take any believer to court? Well, what does 1 Corinthians 6 say? It says it shouldn't be done. To lose financially is far better than to lose spiritually. And I hope hope you believe this. I have a friend who is a Christian lawyer. He can affirm what I'm telling you by way of experience. 
And you know what? I can attest to something similar to this, to this uh, situation in Corinth personally. In fact, God used my situation, and the situation cost me a couple of thousand dollars as part of the means that he used to convert the lawyer that I just talked about so that he could become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. You see? So the issue wasn't about me. It was, it was one of those things. I was a pastor. I wasn't prepared to go to court with anybody. I lost a couple of thousand dollars. <laughs> but God used that as one of, the, actually it was the chief means to bring that lawyer to faith in Jesus Christ. Ask me when the service is done, was it worth it? Ask me. Verse 7. The word wrong is general injustice. The word defraud in verse 7, regard to property. So what verse tells, 8 tells us is that the Christians in Corinth had gotten so far away from the love of God and the kindness of God and the forgiveness of God that they were actually in the church doing wrong and defrauding one another purposely, cheating and doing wrong. So instead of bearing wrong, they were inflicting wrong. And that can happen so easily when lovely Christians of weak conscience just get mowed down over by the competitive and assertive types in the church of Jesus Christ. And we know this to be true. People have big personalities, fine. And they mow us over. And there's nothing we can do because we're not built that way. So there you have it. If we have a matter of dispute with a fellow believer, don't take them to court. And if they won't be honest in their dealings with you, you are far better off for the glory of Christ to suffer loss and leave it in God's hands than to take them to court before the eyes of the watching world. Jesus, Matthew 5, 38 through 40. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You see, Jesus himself was not interested in his own personal rights. Because if he was, he would have never gone to the cross. Why in the world should an innocent man suffer? Why in the world should an innocent man, the only one that ever lived, suffer? One word, our salvation. Our salvation. C.S. Lewis, I ran across this this week. It was so beautiful. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a quote from the book. Wrong will be right when Aslan, Christ, comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And all will be bright and right and clean and beautiful forever in God's heaven. How come these things are so? Because an innocent man, Jesus, did not consider his right. He made himself nothing, was wrong, was cheated for our sake. That's why. Now, in the humility of Jesus Christ, go be like your king. Go be like your king. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray together.
For our gracious God and Father, please this morning give us the kind of heart that serves you with a peaceful abandonment, a heart that is so very submissive and quiet before you. Cause us to cherish Christ above all our earthly desires, above everything. Because, Father, we are tempted to live in a way with our hearts full of our own desires, our own plans, filled with our own agendas, and that is not the way of our Master. So give us the faith to trust and believe you, and even though our obedience may cause us to have very little, thank you that you care for us in such a way that we will never lack anything. Our losses, our crosses will meet with your glory in heaven. And so we pray that you would take us there at your appointed time. For Jesus' sake. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours, both now and forevermore.